And that's one thing that disappoints me about so many of the young ghostbusters today is that you can throw around some of the classic names of some of the classic researchers and you can tell by the expressions on their face they don't know who you're talking about. Be familiar with the classics, the giants of the field who, who did the early research. This is Tim Benall of BenallofAmerica.com with the season finale of BOA Audio Season 2. It is June 30th, 2007, and yes, folks, our long journey comes to a close this week with the final episode of Season 2 of BOA Audio. I knew a few months back when I could see the season finale on the horizon that we really needed a top-notch superstar guest to close out the season. And thankfully, Brad Steyer stepped forward to be that season finale guest. The venerable Brad Steyer, a living legend in the world of esoterica, and I am just thrilled to have him here on the program to close out BOA Audio Season 2. In this lengthy and in-depth conversation, we're going to be talking about what it was like for Brad to break into esoteric studies over 50 years ago at the young age of 20 years old. We're going to discuss the lessons he's learned from all these years studying the paranormal, the evolution of his journey as a researcher, the explosion of esoterica from niche market to veritable cottage industry, his thoughts on the lack of cohesion in esoterica, the role of the media in covering the unknown, the hopefulness of the 1960s, the problem with today's newcomers to esoterica, and tons and tons more. It's truly the culmination of many of the big picture themes from season two, posed to a bona fide first ballot esoteric hall of famer in Brad Steiger. On a personal note, I've listened to this interview several times already, and it is, bar none, one of the very best episodes of BOA Audio that we've ever produced, and I couldn't be happier with the way we're closing out season two with Brad Steiger a veritable icon in the world of esoterica. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Brad Steiger, I'm not even sure how you ended up following an esoteric radio program like BOA Audio if you don't know who Brad Steiger is. But I'm going to give you a little bit of background on Brad Steiger. We actually kind of joke about it in the interview that if we were to give the full bio background on Brad Steiger, we would have used up the whole interview. So let me just give you a thumbnail sketch of Brad Steiger's background. Brad Steiger was born in Fort Dodge, Iowa, on February 19, 1936. He is the author or co-author of 162 books, with over 17 million copies in print. His first published articles on The Unexplained appeared in 1956, and he has now written more than 2,000 articles with paranormal themes. From 1970 to 1973, his weekly newspaper column, The Strange World of Brad Steiger, was carried domestically in over 80 newspapers and overseas from Bombay to Tokyo. He is married to Sherry Hansen Steiger, a licensed and ordained minister, herself the author or co-author of over 22 books. 
He has two sons, three daughters, and six grandchildren. His website is bradandsherry.com, B-R-A-D-A-N-D-S-H-E-R-R-Y.com, bradandsherry.com. Check it out. Without any further ado, let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded on June 4th, 2007. Brad Steiger on the season finale of Been All of America Audio, Season 2. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the season finale of Been All of America Audio, Season 2. And we've had a lot of great guests on the program this season, some up-and-coming researchers, some bona fide legends. But we really have reached beyond that stratosphere with this season finale guest. Uh, if there was ever a Paranormal Hall of Fame, Brad Stogger would be a unanimous first ballot Hall of Famer. He is beyond a legend. He's an icon. He's got over 50 years of research into the esoteric. He's been writing about it and researching it for over 50 years. That's practically double my life. So, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's quite, that's quite uh, a pedigree of extensive research. 162 books he's either authored or co-authored, over 17 million copies in print. He is uh, he's the foundation of Esoterica for a lot of people, and, and I'm just thrilled to death to bring him on here for the season finale of Been All of America Audio Season 2. I feel like it's the culmination of uh, many great interviews we had this season. So, Brad Stogger, welcome to the program. Thank you, Tim. Thank you. That was... Uh kind of a breathtaking uh, introduction there. It, it feels, when, when you use words like that, it, it makes me feel even older than I am. Oh, no. Well, I didn't mean that. <laughs> um, uh, I, I took them all highly complimentary, and I want to thank you very much. I'm I'm honored by your words and by your attention and, and your interest in my work. Oh, definitely, definitely. I'm a huge, huge uh supporter and reader and fan, I guess you could say, of, uh, of your great work. When we usually start the interviews, I ask for like a bio and a background, but, but if I asked you that, we'd, we'd use the whole hour. So I guess uh, to sort of, and, and, and if someone's listening to this and they don't know who Brad Steiger is, I mean, I'm not sure if they have the right radio show. So let's talk about the series of events or the turn of events that led you uh, to find an interest in the esoteric and the unknown. Well, it did. It may sound uh, as though I, I'm uh, not treating your query with respect, and I certainly am, Tim, but it, I, I just can't remember not having an interest. It, it just seemed to be something, and I pardon me, I don't mean to be cliche, but it just seemed to be something I was born into. Um, certainly my uh, childhood environment, we lived in, a home that had been inhabited by my uh, great-grandparents and it had the site had originally been the stagecoach stop and I guess uh, oh there were legends you know Jesse James had been there and Frank James you know and you know growing up with that which I didn't hear until much later but my one of my early memories is this couple dressed in black, a man and a woman who would come and stand by my bed every night. And at first I did the typical childish thing. I hid under the covers, but I come out and they were still there. So after a few nights I decided, well, they're not 
going to hurt me. And no, they were very stern looking. I, I didn't feel that uh, they had anything other than affection for me, if you will. Yeah. Well, it wasn't until many years later that I saw that was my great-grandmother and grandfather. And I guess even though growing up in, as a strict evangelical Christian, when I was young, the idea of ancestor worship and, and anything of that nature would, of course, been uh, certainly anathema. But as I have researched and received, as you might guess, Tim, dozens and dozens of emails every week and letters before that, I, I think that perhaps our ancestors as so-called primitive cultures or Asian cultures believe, and I'm putting quotes around primitive because I don't like that word, but for conveying... I, I think the idea of ancestors being interested in us does not have to be anathema to those who have more uh, traditional Christian faith and beliefs. I think there there is an interest in it in us from benevolent beings and and also from malevolent beings. I, I think we as a as a species, I, I think we're we're kind of um, somewhere between ape and angel. <laughs> and I think there are uh, a lot of visitors or maybe originals, we should say, who have a great interest in us. So I had that indoctrination. And then I can't ignore my mother. I couldn't when she was alive, and I can't when she's passed. <laughs> she was a very, she was mediumistic. Mm -hmm. And she, she would have visitations from a little woman at night. Now, my father was quite the opposite. He, unless you, he could see it, or taste it, touch it, it didn't exist. Yeah. But while the rest of us heard footsteps, other manifestations through the house, although he never really seemed to, and I could not see how he could not have seen or heard some of the things we saw, he never made fun. He always listened very seriously. And I, I think I kind of patterned my my style of reportage on, on kind of a combination an open-mindedness, but yet trying to present things as cautiously and as judiciously. I always kind of feel my dad looking over my shoulder and saying, now, could it have been something else? Yeah. Could it have been something else? Yeah. So I was looking at your at your bio, and it says you first published articles on the unexplained uh, in 1956. And you were born in 1936. You broke into studying this at a pretty young age, like you said, you were born into it, you thought, and, and, and really got into it young for someone who gets into the esoteric, especially that's something we talk about on the show a lot now. You're only 20 when you first started having these uh, published articles. Yeah, I had published before that, but articles in this field. Yeah, that's right, yeah. <laughs> um, no, no, you're correct. Okay. You're correct in 1956, but I had published uh, short stories and, and uh, other things when I was 15. 
Oh, wow. Uh, I couldn't wait to get started. When I was 12, I would sneak into the smoke shop where they sold magazines and buy Fate magazine. And uh, that that was my introduction at age 12, saying, good grief, other people are interested in this. It was a whole different world back then. There wasn't as much uh, oh. information available in general. Uh, what were some of the challenges you had to face to break into that? Oh, first of all, uh, my grandmother was a great influence. Uh, she would read Shakespeare and the classics to me when I was just uh, an infant whenever I would stay overnight with her. But she was very strict, and she began ordering books for me on what she called the occult. Uh, and then she gave me stern warning that I'm... Uh, in her, my, she, she saw my interest growing, and she had one of the... Uh, oh, I, I wish I, I had it. It was... Uh, huge, thick book of Houdini's magic and illusions. She had that in her person. Well, the whole town library began with her personal collection. Oh, wow. But she warned me about, you don't want to get into this because you could go insane. People who explore this area go insane. So with Grandma Dina saying that, ah, but I had a near-death experience when I was 11. On my parents' wedding anniversary, I was in a terrible farm accident. And I was the only place where they thought they could save me was the city, the nearest city of any size was 120 miles away. Oh, wow. And there were no, no super highways at that time. We had to go the little two-lane road through all the little towns to get to Des Moines. And so my uncle and my dad and the family doctor decided to go for it. I was in and out of the body all the way. I, I would be up, and I, I saw things then that I've, I've described to other people who have had near-death experiences. I saw geometric designs um, that seemed alive and they seemed to communicate and uh, my basic thought at age 11 was you know, I, I don't want to die Yeah. and then I was shown something that made me understand that somehow the world would go on without me <laughs> if, yeah. if, I, if I were not there but then I saw that I was not to stay in this incredible dimension, but I was to come back, and I was shown something, and again, this sounds so grossly egocentric, but I'll quickly follow up. I saw something, this geometric design that told me literally the meaning of life the meaning of everything, the continuity of everything, the purpose behind everything. Now, I don't know it now. <laughs> I don't know it now. But, but I know for one moment of pure illumination, I knew it then. And so nothing, Tim, nothing could dissuade me from telling people about it. Yeah. Now, 
I was going to do it the conventional way. Everyone thought, especially when I, I mean, everyone in town thought I died. That was the word, I died. When they saw I had not, then it, it cinched, but they had already decided that I was going to be a Lutheran pastor. Well, after my experience, I thought, I'll try that, but I, I don't think. Judging from what I have been hearing in the, from the pulpit ever since I was a child, I don't think they're going to really accept everything that I'm going to say. Yeah. But my first testimony, if you will, I was taken to a Roman Catholic hospital. Now, being brought up, brought up evangelical Lutheran, that itself was an experience to see the nuns walking, you know, around in their habits. Mm-hmm. And of course, there are all kinds of stories, you know, about nuns and what they really did and so forth. <laughs> but <laughs> that didn't apply to me because I have the interesting family background that so many people do. I was half the family was Lutheran and half the family was Roman Catholic. And, and as an agreement, we never discussed religion or politics ever at any family gathering. So my first testimony, the nuns talked to me and they understood, I guess I was blessed to have mystically minded nuns, that I had been somewhere and seen something. In the room with me, there was a child who was dying. And they asked, the nuns asked, if I would speak to their parents and tell them what was like on the other side, what it was like in the nuns' words in heaven, and give the parents some closure or peace of mind. Mm -hmm. And I did. And I suppose that was the beginning of my mission here on Earth. A long search to uh, get that answer back that they gave you on the ride to the hospital, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. I tried to describe this. I did not know it. I did not recognize this until my wife, Sherry, became interested in fractal geometry. And she sent to some mathematicians, physicists, who were using fractals, and then she incorporated them in her presentation. And when I attended her presentation with all these projected on the wall, this, these fractals, I said... That's the closest to what I saw. Wow. Um, the building blocks of life. There you go. I was checking out the back of uh, Strange Guests, and it says that Ivan T. Sanderson really influenced you as a mentor to uh, get that book together and, and get it get it put out there. Who were some of the uh, the mentors to you that were in the esoteric field that uh, people would know about, like Ivan T. Sanderson? Who were the people that paved the road for you to get up and running on, on this? Hmm. Is that too broad a question? I, I'd, I'd have <laughs> to give it a moment. Of, I'd have to give it a moment of thought. Uh, there certainly were Kurt and Mary Fuller, whom I got to know personally, um, and uh, Ray Palmer. Ray and Kurt founded Fate Magazine, as as I I think you may know. Mm-hmm. And so uh, they certainly were a great inspiration with their works, and they're open-minded approach to the field. Uh, then there was Dr. Nandor Fordor, whose works influenced me. Uh, I, I did not get to meet him, but I was able to meet his wife. He had passed by the time I was of a, a certain, what shall we say, uh, reputation there you for, go. 
where, where people would take time to meet with me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, oh, I, I know there will be others. Um, oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Of course, uh, James, you know, is is my mentor. Goethe is my. I'm, I'm talking about people in the spirit now. So William James and Goethe. Um, a great influence. Uh, Emerson, Transcendentalism is a very great influence on me. Um, and, and then all the, all the pioneers of the psychic field. And that's one thing that disappoints me about so many of the young ghostbusters today is that you can throw around some of the classic names of some of the classic researchers of the turn of the previous century and you can tell by the expressions on their face. They don't know who you're talking about. They don't know the literature of psychical research. So I must say that I did immerse myself in the literature of psychical research. And, and all of those wonderful pioneers ha had a great influence. And then I was privileged to meet so many of the finest mediums who, alas, only a few are, are with us now. Uh, people who did materializations, people who did psychokinesis almost, almost on, on demand. We don't have that type of mediumship today, do we? Uh, we have channelers. We have people who get impressions. And some of them, I must say, I'm quite dubious. Uh, yeah. Because I'm pretty darn good at cold reading myself. You know? <laughs> and, and so people who just kind of throw out things. Uh, but but some of the the greats of the past, you know, were were truly um, mind opening. Because I there again, I've got to say, even though I had this near death experience that broadened my horizons, when I went into research, I kind of patterned myself. I, I was also uh, very interested in magic, and I had a little magic act that I do. My sister was my assistant confederate who was hidden in the audience, <laughs> who would come forward to assist me in my, in my ledger domain. Um, so I felt a great dichotomy of feeling about mediums and spirit mediums I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. And so when I began to go to spiritualist camps as uh, in my late teens, I went with the notion of exposing them. Huh. And then I had the good fortune to, uh, I, I knew how you could do it if you tricked it. I knew how you could do slate reading and so forth if you tricked it. Because I was doing that as part of my little act. But these were people who were not to the best of my ability. And then some of them I had studied for years were demonstrably employing psychic phenomena, psychic ability, uh, abilities of the mind, whatever suits you, uh, in, in a way that I thought bore serious examination. And, and then I began to truly uh, become an explorer. I, I don't think... People are, are sometimes disappointed in me because they think... I'm credulous and they can come up at a conference and lecture and tell me any story and I'm going to go, wow. <laughs> I have in one sense 
not never say here at all because they'll cook up something you haven't. But I haven't in one sense heard it all. Yeah, I heard every story, every variation of abduction or whatever. Mm-hmm. And you know, after a while, you're not foolproof, and should you should never think you are. But you do kind of start to recognize the people who had a genuine mystical experience. And to me, they're all mystical experiences. Had a genuine individual mystical experience and those who maybe saw something on television that impressed them. You kind of broke into this in your teens and your 20s. Was that the exception to the rule back then? Because nowadays, young people, they are gravitating towards, like you said, the ghost the ghost hunting. And there seem to be a lot of yeah. young people involved with this 9-11 stuff. But uh, not so many young people in ufology or some of the other more classic uh, realms. Um, when you broke into uh, studying this sort of thing, was were you the exception to the rule as a young person, or, or uh, was it more acceptable for young people to be interested? No, not at all. Not at all. Uh, I didn't know anyone. I didn't know anyone. I more or less forced my cousins, some of them, to <laughs> become interested. And because we're a very close family, they they um, tolerated me. <laughs> and that's the, that's the word. Yeah. Because um, I, I was very fortunate in that I have a, I have a very very loving family, and had and very supportive, and that is you know that's crucial I think to any creative person. Mm-hmm. I was extremely sensitive as a child. And I don't mean that in the sense I mean of psychic impressions. Yeah. I, I was just genuinely, I was easily moved to tears, which was embarrassing sometimes. Uh, very embarrassing. I, I guess as I grew, my the pastor who confirmed me said that my problem, I was a sin eater. And... Uh, in the classic Celtic sense, that's, you know, the person dies and you put on the bread, you put on the wine, and then he eats the sins and so they can go on to heaven. But I was trying truly to change the world, save the world, and um, I wanted so desperately people to understand and accept the things that I saw, sensed, yeah, and uh, found nothing but rejection. Only my family a amused tolerance, uh, sometimes laughing, but you know, in, in a loving, in a loving way. Yeah, <laughs> there are ways to be laughed at that really don't hurt your feelings that much. Yeah, but there was really no one I I could talk to at all until I um, went out and began investigating things, and then meeting some like-minded individuals that at uh, different camps, spiritualist camps. Now, they, of course, were making it a faith, which which I did not. I thought that that's perfectly fine. I never criticized anyone's way of going, spiritual way of going. But I did not see, of course, communication with communication with the spirits as as a religion, as, as they did. So we, we couldn't walk hand in hand on that. It wasn't until I began writing. When I began publishing, that's when I found my vast number of friends whom I probably would never meet. 
I have corresponded with a few individuals since my very first book, since, since Strange Guest was published in 1966 for the first time. Yeah. People wrote me letters then. I'm still in correspondence with, oh, with wow. some people. So those people, some of whom I, I have met, and we've become even closer friends, and then some I've simply corresponded. I've corresponded with so many people who were kids reading my books, who are now publishers, who have edited my books, oh, wow. who have published my books. Now that's a strange feeling. It's a wonderful feeling. And and what advice do you have for a young person or or a regular person, I guess, or you know, a middle aged person or something, breaking into uh, this this field of the unknown? What what kind of advice would you have for them? You know, Tim, I, I kind of learned long ago not to give advice. <laughs> now, are you talking about the writing aspect of it? Um, no. I have no advice to give anyone. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, like just sort of general, you know, uh, do your own research, don't trust everybody, that kind of thing, or, or uh, maybe you have some, some nugget of, of wisdom that I haven't heard yet from, uh, from people that we've had on the show. Well, probably not. I, I would say, <laughs> uh, for, first, first of all, uh, again, uh, I guess I'm old school in this regard, Tim. I would say read. Mm-hmm. I talk to so many young people. I, I am just amazed. They've read one or two books. Um, and again, this will sound incredibly arrogant, so forgive me. They don't even know who I am. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> and, and seem proud of the fact, no, I haven't read any books. You reading any books? In this field, I mean, I read this book and I saw this television and, you know, I think I should have my own series because I have really seen these marvelous things. Now, I've had, <laughs> that, that is verbatim from what I've heard from some people. Oh, wow. Uh, they, they, you know, they've seen Discovery Channel, History Channel, they've seen ghosts. They go out, they have their flashlights, their tape recorders, their magnometers or whatever. And uh, now they're they're ghostbusters. They're they're really tracking things down. Now the people I came to know in love in those early days who had devoted their lives to it. I mean, they had been in it for years before they they dared to uh, truly come out and explore. In one sense, I was brash because you know here I was, 30 years old and. And I'd already a number, number of articles. I, I began writing books, um, filled with my excitement, filled with the files that I've been collecting since I was 11. But that's the key thing. I, bed, I began an earnest study in collecting, clipping, clipping articles from magazines, newspapers, etc. when I was 11. And I didn't publish then books in this field until I'm 30. Now, I'm not going to expect anyone to wait that long, but at least be familiar with the classics, the giants of the field who who did the early research, who sat with the early fantastic mediums of that particular time. And uh, really explore yourself. Know what your own weaknesses are, which I had to learn the hard way because... When I really began going researching and going 
exploring and answering people's pleas, whether it was from police departments or colleges or whatever. Mm -hmm. We have a haunting situation. Can you help us? Tim, I was 30. I knew all the answers. <laughs> I was really smart. I, I had theories all worked out. Mm -hmm. And I would try, I would force what I saw to fit those theories until I came up against things that were just so contrary that really were life-altering experiences for me, recognizing just how little I knew, how inexperienced I was, how how stupid I was, how much I had to learn. Even Say, though, I had a great deal of book knowledge. I had read all the classics. I had read all the researchers. Now I'm going out there and I'm employing. I had pretty well worked out that ghosts, and I still think this is the majority of true ghosts when it's not a squirrel in the attic or pipes banging. I think the majority of what we call haunting phenomena is energy somehow impressed into the environment that people of a particular psychic sensitivity or affinity will be able to discern, or even people who are the least and the least bit of sensitivity will somehow see an act of this. Like, and I know you're familiar with this, but it's like a movie being reenacted, and yeah. people can see, hear, smell. They can't interact, though. It's just a, a loop. And I think someday we'll understand that very clearly. So that doesn't involve a spirit. That doesn't involve intelligence. That doesn't involve uh, survival after death. That's where I was when I went out. And then confronting what seemed unmistakably to be an intelligence behind some of the hauntings. And in some cases, an intelligence that might arrogance had angered and physically took after me, forced me to just completely have, you know, an illumination experience and understand, you know, that categories, cataloging, you just can't do it in this field. You just can't do it. There is this other dimension. There is so much. That the challenge, though, is so exciting. I I just remain continually supercharged with, with every new case I begin to investigate, with, with every new email that comes in telling me of this experience or that experience. And uh, will we ever know? Will we ever really understand? Are we supposed to ever understand? I have even some good colleagues who who feel they do have all the answers. <laughs> and they speak with great certainty and can answer any question anyone poses. Well, I'm I'm not that person. I'm I uh, I have some answers but I really have more questions than I do answers. After 50 years, I have a feeling that that would be the case. Now, I was looking through your vast bibliography, and I'm wondering if there was like a flow to the evolution of your research. I know that you first were writing about like a lot of film-related type stuff, and then, then you got into the unexplained ghosts, UFOs, ESP, the hidden history aspects. 
angels, miracles. That seems to be a, that's a thumbnail sort of look at the, at the flow, and of course mm-hmm. you sort of bounce mm-hmm. back into the different genres after you've right. uh, written about them right. in the first place. Um, but was there any sort of flow to that evolution as a researcher? Was it just sort of like the, you know something new would come along and you'd be like, okay, let's let's follow this road now? That's very interesting. You know, when you look back, I, I guess maybe the pattern I see is this an overall pattern of always exposing people to what we call the unknown. Some people get upset when I say the supernatural. Where I live now in the Bible Belt, you can't speak of the supernatural. That is the same as Satan. <laughs> you're satanic if you're interested in the supernatural. And I said, well, what about what about the other and uh, the supreme being? Isn't is, I mean, he's just founder. No, no, that's well. People have problems with words. People have problems with definitions, and that's why I say. We just can't force definitions in this field, but it's interesting. I am a movie buff, and I love horror films, and that explains, you know, some of my early books because uh, there was a cycle where, when I began writing books in the mid '60s, horror films were undergoing a revival. The, the great Universal monster films. And so that I saw as an entree to start getting books published because, I mean, I wasn't in Hollywood, but I considered myself an expert, if you can ever consider yourself. But anyway, when you're, I I was under 30 then when I began writing those, so, you know, naturally I thought I was an expert. Yeah. So I uh, began publishing those, and then that led to a column in a tabloid, the National Tabler, which is no longer with us, but its brothers and sisters are still flourishing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's where Ivan Sanderson saw my column and wrote me a fan letter. And I was just, uh, I mean, I was, n- no one could understand. <laughs> yeah. I got a letter from Ivan D. Sanderson. <laughs> So, who's that, you know? Yeah. But it meant a lot to me. Mm-hmm. And then he began encouraging me. He thought I was the man to write about poltergeist. He had been trying to get someone interested for years, so I undertook that. But then Ivan lost his position as acquisitions editor, went back to freelancing, lecturing, and so forth. Then I was given... Um, Rudolph Valentino's scrapbook and the gentleman who had been in the head of, I guess for lack of a better term, um, Valentino's fan club way back in the 1920s contacted me about doing a biography of Rudolph Valentino. And that then led to the kid from Iowa being asked to go to New York, finish the book there, meeting with editors, meeting with some of my my heroes, you know, in the, in the meeting with Ivan and Hans Stefan Santesen and, and several other uh, researchers uh, and editors, different authors, John Keel, that's when John, John and Keel and I met face-to-face and 
and uh, spent some time together. Tim Beckley, who I've been corresponding with since he was 14, and then, you know, Tim. Oh, wow. And, uh, you know, just, uh, it, it was just, you know, it was my first trip, you know, to Manhattan and, and to stay there for two weeks, uh, finishing the book and uh, working with the staff. And, but you see, the paranormal then is kind of slipping back, except for articles. Mm-hmm. This is the way it happened. Yeah. I had a cocktail party in which everyone is congratulating themselves for whatever part they played in writing my book. <laughs> and I've, I've laughingly met a number of editors who said, so many of us took credit for the success of your book. <laughs> At any rate, uh, Valentin go on to become, you know, bestseller and they made a movie of it, Ken Russell and, and so forth. Mm-hmm. So, but at this, party, my agent said, you know, my the editor, you know, he knew him personally, and he said, you know, he had a strange experience. Uh, he was in his apartment one night, and there was a banging on the door. He opened the door. The young man came shouting, running, jumped off his balcony, and fell 13 floors below. Wow. The man was startled. He screamed. He called the police. They ran down, went to the sidewalk. No one, nothing, nothing was there. But then he did some checking, and several years ago on that very night, someone had jumped off the balcony. So he said to me, do you have any idea what happened? So did I have an idea? So I explained then about haunting and place memories and so forth. And pretty soon I was answering questions on dreams. I was answering questions on ghosts. I was answering questions on deja vu. I was answering questions on reincarnation. All of this that had been studying since 11 came spewing out at this literary cocktail. And I went home with five or six contracts to write books in the paranormal field. Oh, wow. That's how it started, Tim. Now, how did you get turned on to the UFO phenomenon? Because that's outside of that whole metaphysical type realm. To me, it's all the same. To me, it's all the same. However, when I wrote that book, Strangers from the Skies, and there again, you see, this is beginner's luck. Valentino takes off. Ken Russell makes a movie of it. Um, Strangers from the Skies, UFOs. That comes out the week after Dr. Heineck has said, made and made UFOs all over the world because he says the Michigan sighting is nothing but swamp gas. Everyone's arguing about it. That's when my book came out. It was on the paperback seller list in two weeks. Wow. Because it, the timing, everything yeah. in this field is timing. Maybe everything in life is timing. So, when I was asked to do a book on UFOs, I had pretty much decided that the only people who saw UFOs were those who howled at the moon on Saturday night because <laughs> of some personal embarrassing experiences. But I went into UFO research with an open mind. I believe very much that there's something to it. And, of course, at the very beginning, 
I bought into the nuts and bolts like everyone else did in 1966. But I hadn't been researching UFOs for only a few months when I said, this is just like what I've been. This is the paranormal. Mm -hmm. Contactees, they're mediums. Other people who are having experiences, those are mystical experiences. These are the same experiences people have been having since prehistoric times. They're certainly the same experiences people were having in the Bible. But it took me a while before I wrote Gods of Aquarius and brought the whole metaphysical, esoteric into UFOs. And now, I think you know, you've probably seen on my website, I have 17 theories of what UFOs probably could be. And maybe check all of the above. <laughs> I want to ask about uh, the lack of cohesion in the esoteric paranormal field. Uh you said, you know, you thought when I asked about the UFOs and how it differed, you know, how it was different from metaphysical. You said, uh, you know, it's all it's all kind of in the same in the same realm. It's all related. A lot of people don't have that opinion. You know, the uh, mm -hmm. the ghost people they don't want anything to do with the UFO people, and the UFO people so they don't even want, some of them don't want anything to do with the other UFO people, <laughs> and and you know the Bigfoot people don't even ask them about UFOs or else you know they'll yell at you and and that sort of thing. Yep. You know, everybody has their own camp, and and you don't. You know, you don't mix camps pretty much. That seems to be the attitude. Was it always like that uh, when you got into it? Was it like that, or was it more uh, was it more cohesive? And how can we overcome that problem of this uh, specialization in the esoteric it, field? It's always it's always been that way. Uh, in my observation, the UFO field is the worst. <laughs> 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 they, they are the most proprietary. Uh, the most uh, backstabbing vicious of all the different groups in my experience. Now, of course, there are wonderful, open-minded, eclectic researchers in the field, but in UFOs from the very beginning, this is my case. I own it. This is my research. I own it. This is my little segment of the ufology. I belong. Don't you dare trespass in it or I'll sue you. Uh, it's, it's just... I just have nothing to do with with that at all. Yeah. The the ghost people, quote unquote, uh I, I find the uh the friendliest. Uh I'm think I'm probably in contact with with most of the better known of all the researchers and we exchange pleasantries and write nice reviews about each other's books or write nice blurbs about each other's books because we genuinely respect and admire one another. The the ESP field, uh, again, uh, greatly proprietary. When I first started, uh, I had many established authors or researchers in the field tell me I just had absolutely no business writing books. I had no business writing in their field. I, I was as if as if they had some kind of authority. I mean, I was ordered out. I was ordered to cease researching wow. certain areas. And uh, no, it was somewhat intimidating. But I had a marvelous editor at the time, and I said, you know, so-and-so said I can't research this because I don't have a right and his answer was, 
show him the line to stand in to get the right. That's how facetious that is. That's how silly it is to tell anyone they don't have the right to research an area that interests them. And of course, as you can see from the bibliography, it all interests me, but I see it all as aspects of one, one source, one dimension. Now, in real ghosts, I, I had a, a difficult time there because I had to put things in chapters. Now, they wanted me to do that as an encyclopedia. Well, I just, no, 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 I just can't do that. I mean, that would just be all over the place because if there aren't categories, if there are not, if we can't catalog them, there are at least, I mean, there are ghosts in hotels and there are ghosts on highways and there are ghosts in pubs and there, so at least let me break it that way. And it's been very successful. That's been an extremely successful book, Real Ghosts, Restless Spirits, and Haunted Places. But it's difficult for me in the opening chapter, or the, excuse me, the introduction, to say that, well, maybe there are seven or eight basic categories. But I don't know that for sure. I don't know how many categories there are. But it just seems to be, you know, after after over 50 years of researching this, to, to feel that, we as human, in our human brain, simply have to think. We have to divide things. We have to try to name things. That's the great power of the medicine man, you know, because he gives the problem a name. That's the great problem, excuse me, the great power of our modern doctors. Because when you go in with that vague rumbling in your stomach, he gives it a name. And right away you feel better. Oh, we can handle this. It has a name. And so I think we have to. There's something in the human brain that just demands that we try to break things down so that we can possibly begin to understand. That was a profound answer. I'm a little uh, left, taken aback, left a little speechless on that one. I, I, was, I was afraid I'd put you to sleep. Oh, no, no, not at all, not at all. <laughs> well, I'm not a big interrupter on the show. No, you're marvelous. <laughs> you're marvelous. Now, obviously, you've seen the uh the paranormal field here for like the last 50 years um it's really exploded into a like a cottage industry in and of itself incredibly i could never have dreamed that in 1966 yeah that's kind of where i'm going with this paradoxically the the paranormal is still kind of marginalized by the mainstream despite it being so huge as a as a genre um and you said just now that you could never imagine it getting it so getting so big. So I presume that must have surprised you quite a bit at how how big the paranormal's gotten. Um, just talk a little bit about that 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 evolution that you've seen happen over the last fifty years, where you know went from maybe there was a couple magazines on the newsstand or or, or something like that, but you know never the kind of stuff you see now. You could you turn on the TV, you're almost guaranteed to find some TV show about oh, the paranormal yeah. on every night. You know, you go to Barnes & Noble, there's like four or five magazines and a whole section of books in, in the mainstream bookstores. So, I don't know, what are your thoughts on that evolution of the paranormal as this huge uh, juggernaut that it is now? Well, uh, like so many things in life, it, it, it has, it, it's a double edge. It's yin and yang. Mm -hmm. There's the positive, and that more and more people are interested, but then... There's also the curse of when something becomes a fad. Yeah. There's also the curse of when something becomes too popular. But as as I said, you know, the when I first began doing radio shows, which would have been in this field, 
1966, I guess, with Strange Guests and so forth. Yeah. I would have people just before we went on the air, and, and in those days, Tim, we couldn't do it if we're doing it comfortably now. If I had a radio show in Pittsburgh, I had to go to Pittsburgh. If I had a, I mean, that's the way we did it then. Oh, wow. Uh, the, the phoners didn't come in until quite some time later. But I, I would have people just before we go on the air say, I'm going to cut you to ribbons. I'm going to make you look like a donkey. I'm going to make you look like a fool. I'm going to embarrass you. Now, just before you go on air, you have someone who's been very friendly to you and welcoming you. <laughs> just before you go on air, he says he's going to murder you. He's going to kill you. Now, that, of course, really helped one to relax during the show. <laughs> and, and just the very idea, the majority of people who would call for an interviews were calling you know, to get their jollies off, you know, to try to humiliate you, try to ridicule you. Um, you know, they're like the morning jocks, radio shock jocks today, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, only then they were, uh, had late night shows and so forth. But to talk to someone such as yourself, you know, asking reasoned questions and listening to the answers, you know, just wouldn't have been heard of. We had Long John, you know, and, and who else? Long John Neville, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm saying. That we didn't have anyone else. Yeah. And then uh, you kind of allude to this. Actually, my my jaw pretty much hit the floor when you told that story there about about goat robot before we went on the air, uh, the radio shows. I'm just stunned by that. Oh, that was par. That was par for the course. Wow. And that was the same for newspaper interviews. That was the same. I mean, that that was just uh, everyone. Uh, and so again, you know, my my uh, strategy was just to remain as calm as possible and to give reasoned answers to show them I wasn't a snake oil salesman. I wasn't a missionary. I was just fascinated by certain ideas and concepts, and I wanted to share them. Now, if it didn't fit with them, fine. If, it, if, if it's something they didn't want to hear, they shouldn't have invited me on. And for all those I'm offending at home, turn the dial. I'm not, I'm not forcing you. I'm not suggesting. Because I'd had that experience when I taught in college. I was in my passionate period then. Again, 30 years old. And I would, I would not debate, but I would earnestly discuss these subjects until I was exhausted. And I realized that I would have to go knock on everyone's door for the rest of my life. <laughs> and I can't do that. I can't do that because these that, that's the only way I can say it. I'm excited by these ideas. I'm excited by these concepts. I hope that in my books I can transmit some of that excitement, some of that... Uh, I have uh, skeptics who, you know, may, maybe they're not embracing what I say, but, but they will say that mine were some of the first books they ever read, and it filled them with a sense of wonder and excitement. Now they probably have dismissed some of my theories, some of my thoughts, but they still remember I gave them that sense of wonder. And that's, that's something I'm, I'm, I feel enormously complimented by, and that's something I hope I continue to do. Well, you've influenced generations, so I'm sure that that you uh, can rest easy knowing that you've done that. 
Is there any way to overcome that giggle factor? You already uh, sort of answered the first part of this question, which was, did it exist as strongly when you broke into the field? Apparently, yes, it did, and probably even worse uh, maybe than it is now. But how do we overcome that giggle factor to, uh, you know, open more people's minds up to the unexplained? I, I still take my same position, Tim. Mm-hmm. Present the material with dignity, with a sense of... I don't take myself seriously, but I take my work very seriously, and I, and I hope that comes across. But I have found that I can't joke. I can't joke on the air. <laughs> People don't want me to joke. I, I remember one time that I was on with this very well-known talk show host, and he and I had become friends, and we would trade barbs back and forth. Well, he was really giving it to me that night, so I let it spill over on the air and started zinging him back. And people call them, they don't want to hear Brad Steiger giving singers. They don't want to hear me putting anyone down. They don't even want me defending myself in a satirical or humorous way. They want me to present the material seriously. So how do we overcome the giggle factor? I say that's by, again, presenting our information as straightforwardly, as unbiased as we can, and... Again, I hate to criticize anyone, but some of the material that I see on television, uh, Sherry and I watch it and we say, no wonder they laugh at our field. No wonder the skeptics mock us. Look at what's being portrayed as psychical researcher on this reality show where they're allegedly going into a haunted house, where they're allegedly exploring. Who wouldn't? laugh at that. Who, who could take that seriously? So again, a serious approach and not stifling people, listening to their argument, listening to their their points. But I think we have to have some kind of dignity in this field. We have to have some kind of quality control in what we're doing in this field. And how do you deal with that quality control? Because the, the paranormal seems to lend itself to... Uh off-kilter folks and off, you know, people who aren't playing with a full deck seem to love to jump on into the paranormal field. I mean, how do we police? That's right. Is there any way to police ourselves? No, because the minute we would do it, we would be accused of being dictators. We'd be accused yeah. of thinking we're better than anyone else. I think, Tim, we have to let it play out. And it's kind of like, you know, the the basic rule of you know, good rises and bad sinks over time, and um, you know all those all those principles of physics and nature and life and law indicate that eventually, you know, they that will again be swallowed up by another fad, yeah. by another interest, and then those of us who are serious about this work, those of us who are trying to present it with as much dignity as possible. We'll still be here, won't we? Exactly, exactly. And uh, just like you and know, all the exploitation will, you know, have its day. Yeah. Something tells me you've probably seen a lot of uh, charismatic people with not really much substance to them <laughs> uh, come and go over the years. So, um, oh, indeed. During like the '60s and uh, and the '70s, I guess, and and just sort of uh, over this period of time, what was the mood like when you got into this? Ho- was the, was it a hopeful mood? That's kind of the idea that I have of 
the 60s and that sort of generation as far as the paranormal goes. I mean, with, with the ufology, you had folks like NICAP, and they were really beating down the door of Congress, and it seemed like they sort of had the idea that maybe the answer was right around the corner. People were doing all kinds of crazy stuff in the 60s, and I'm sure they probably thought they were really opening up their minds to, to getting really close to the answers. So what, was it a general uh, feeling of hopefulness back then, and, and, and sort of uh, did that hopefulness uh, wither away over time, or how did, how did that change? I'm really glad you asked me that. Uh, it was a very hopeful time. It was a very exciting time. It was a time for which certain of us have a great nostalgia. Uh, you you gave a lecture, and it was packed in. I mean, mm-hmm. people wanted to know. They really, uh, instead of suddenly within a period of about two years, it turned from ridicule and laughter to people wanting to know. And there's nothing as thrilling as standing in front of a packed, audience of university students or a mixture of individuals wanting to know, having a thirst for for information that you're privileged, honored to have been chosen to share with them. It's a period that, you know, and it's just, now again, um, my position on a lot of the drug activity at the time, I believe totally in the natural way. I knew some of the movers and shakers in the LSD field. Timothy Leary paid me the great compliment when we met as to say to me that reading my books were the most fun that he had with his clothes on. <laughs> so I took that as a compliment. We could sit down, whether it's Tim Leary or the Merry Pranksters and Ken Kesey, we could sit down and exchange ideas, even though I was not... You know, to me it was the natural way, but I, I respect those. I, you know, I have, I, I've done a lot of work and a lot of my passion with, is with uh, Native American shaman. And Sherry is, of course, the Swedish Chippewa, and, and she's, you know, very, very much, in fact, she's doing a sweat right now as we do this. Um, she, she, um, it was a very exciting time and, to explore and to acquaint an audience of ordinary people, the masses, the middle class, who were actually asking and seemed to want to know. It, it was a time, you know, that I, that I haven't seen since, and it it did, as you say. That interest did die out. Um, some, some of the, you know, as it will with any mass movement, it seems there will be excesses, there will be extremes, there will be those who were advocating too many chemical aids. But at least the fire was ignited, and there was a genuine interest in this field at that time. That even though. One could argue and say, well, look at you turn on TV and there's paranormal this and Ghostbusters this and, and on and on and on. It wasn't the same as the quality that, and yes, it, it was then eventually exploited and overdone by too many people jumping in. 
Then we move to the channeling. Now, again, I don't, I don't want exclusivity. I'm not saying for one minute that it should be only a few of us. I want as many people talking about this as possible. I want everyone to be talking about it, but with a balanced, balanced and, and understanding in a serious manner. This is not, this does not lend itself to the American ideal of push, pull, click, click. It does not lend itself to instant transmission. And that's the danger I see in, in, you know, reading two or three books and watching a special and thinking you can have a ghost club. You have to study. You have to be prepared. You have to know what you're doing. So that's all I'm saying is, is awareness, a genuine striving for awareness and self-illumination. That takes time. That takes time. That takes effort. It takes study. It takes discipline. And it takes discernment. And those are the aspects that we must always, those of us who are really serious about this field, those are the aspects that we must always strive to see that they are present. Yeah. Is there is there a frustration level uh, with the lack of overall uh, definitive sort of answers in esoterica? I mean, you've been in this 50 years. Uh, we haven't captured a Bigfoot. We don't know what ghosts are yet still. Uh, you know, we still are just as dumbfounded by UFOs as we were back in the day. Uh, there doesn't seem to be any genre of the esoteric where there's been a breakthrough in the last 50 years. Is there a frustration level with that lack of overall answers, and, and how do you deal with that frustration? Well, I, I mentioned earlier, Tim, that one of my spiritual mentors was Goethe. Mm-hmm. And a quote from Goethe that keeps me going is, The striving is more important than the goal. Maybe all these things are cosmic educational toys that have been scattered about on this planet to challenge us, to provoke us, to lead us into the future. And the, maybe the goal we have attained, maybe the goal we don't recognize, but to strive. Maybe we won't recognize it when we find it, but it's the striving, the fact that we care, that we are working, that we are seeking answers. We are striving for answers. As I said to me, that may be more important than the goal. Yeah. It may be important to believe that there's a Bigfoot so that we are interested in conserving our natural resources and preserving the life of other animals and, and recognizing that life as we know it may take many shapes, many different forms. That may be as important as finding Bigfoot, finding actual proof of a ghost, just idea of survival, that life goes on, that we are more than physical things. That may be important than proving to everyone that there is a ghost, because the same proof will not be applicable or acceptable to everyone. So I think it is, once again, all these, in my opinion, are individual mystical experiences that we undergo to seek our own, you can say salvation if you wish, but in a ecumenical sense, not in a denominational sense, to seek our own illumination, to seek our own moment of truth. Maybe that's what these are, cosmic educational toys. Okay. 
And then this one's uh, kind of a big dog here. This one's a big, big beast in the in the, in the room here. Uh, the role of the media. Bigger, bigger than some of the others? I think so. I think so. Well, it's also uh, kind of <laughs> kind of breaks the fourth wall, too, in a sense, because you know, we're talking about the role of the media in covering Esoterica. Obviously, you've seen it evolve from, you know, three or four channels only <laughs> to 500 and then this insane thing called the Internet that obviously no one had any idea was going to happen uh, 50 years ago. So uh, the media is all pervasive. It's insane. And uh, why do you think they're so inactive, I guess, in serious study of the paranormal? And uh, are you surprised by that sort of inactivity? No, I'm not, because there's actually, or there was, and I assume there still is, a uh, broadcasting code against broadcasting anything of this nature that would encourage belief. Way back in that period when I was talking about when people would attack and threaten me with vicious things they're going to do to me <laughs> during the program, the only network at that time that would let someone like me sneak on was ABC. They, they were the only network that ignored the code and said, well, if people are interested, let them come on. So most of the television I did was on good old ABC, the Alphabet Network. Uh, CBS strayed away from it like it was, uh, you know, advocating the, the plague or other horrible things. The, uh, I think, you know, if one wanted to be of a conspiratorial nature, uh, I think there is an element that does not want this information disseminated in a serious way. And they are laughing with delight over the watering down, the uh, flagrant exploitation of this field, and the ridiculous manner in which it's usually presented on, on the various... Uh, whether it's Internet or the many cable networks. I think they are delighted that it's being portrayed and distorted in that way. I think here again, uh, you know, we do have the book Conspiracies and Secret Societies in, in that bibliography. Mm -hmm. I, I think that this is just playing exactly into the way certain, certain factors within our society want it to be. The salvation of this field is and has always been earnest young people like yourself, Tim, who take the field seriously, write, broadcast, and will join the voices who want to treat this with some kind of dignity, some kind of seriousness, and achieve some kind of progress. So again... Our, our salvation as a field lies in young people such as you. Wow. Um, just, you're rendering me speechless here tonight, uh, Brad. I, I really appreciate that. That, uh, that really means a lot to me. Um, and, and, uh, you touch on, on this conspiracy element. How pervasive, uh, do you think it is? And, uh, you know, some people think it's, it's something that goes all the way back to, you know, Egypt times and, 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 and you know, the pyramids and, and, and uh, you know, ancient astronauts even and all that kind of stuff. Do you think this is the kind of thing that what, uh, you know, Joe Sixpack thinks is the real world is running parallel to uh, something else that's, that's you know, being manufactured uh, by 
a smaller core of people that are sort of pulling all the strings. I would have done a wink, wink, nudge, nudge if you'd asked me that a few years ago. But I've been collecting information, conspiracies, and secret societies again since I was 11 years old and building a file. So when the book Conspiracies and Secret Societies say, wow, that's really departure for you. No, not really. And I see the parallels. Now, again, if you, if you really examine things, if you really, and, and part of the beautiful thing of this is we had a really hard-nosed editor who wouldn't let us put any opinion or theory in the book at all. This is history, and I'm a history buff, and this is journalism. And all our reviews, every single review, we've been delighted, will say it is a fair-minded, it's balanced, it doesn't take any side, it doesn't spread any point of view. It truly is a balanced presentation of conspiracies and secret societies throughout history. That being said, one cannot help, <laughs> true or not, when you examine and go all the way back to Egypt, and I would say before Egypt, which is worlds before our own, I would say that it's almost inescapable to at least entertain the theory that there might be you know, a shadow reality, a shadow government, a shadow council, a shadow brotherhood, at least that enters the realm. I realize a fancy and imagination and a paranoia, but, you know, if you just study it, one has to at least entertain that notion. Yeah, yeah. The last uh, question I kind of had for you um, that, that th is a throwback in a way to a lot of what we've been talking about here on our show, and it deals in ufology and this in internal debate within ufology of science versus politics, investigation versus activism. Nowadays, ufology is sort of split into two camps. Uh, the exopolitical brand that, you know, wants to uh, cultivate whistleblowers and push Congress and, and sort of become more of a political action type uh type of venture, and then they're at odds with uh, some of the old school ufologists and some of the new school ufologists who are more about, you know, the nuts and bolts, gathering evidence, investigating cases, and that kind of thing. I'm I'm sort of in favor of, you know, trying to bridge those two, but, you know, <laughs> I, I'm having a hard time, I'm having a hard time building that bridge, but uh, I wanted to know what you, what you think is, uh, could be the proper balance, I guess, between the science and the politics of, of ufology, and, and do you think there even is merit in that activism? Sherry and I feel that the UFO phenomena is is so related and such an excuse me, so related to other so called phenomena that other people think are independent and is an integral part of our evolutionary process and has always been with us as a, an alternate reality, if you will. Mm -hmm. And if it is an intelligence, then it is far more clever, far more sophisticated, far more wise than we are, and may always keep its true visage from reflecting in any way in the mirror of Homo sapiens. So I think uh, Sherry worked with Dr. Hynek at the very closing days, and she was fascinated to see a man who began as nuts and bolts and straight science 
and this will upset a lot of people when I say, but become increasingly mystical, become increasingly uh, more accepting of, well, I, I guess metaphysical applications or a, a science that may be, as he phrased it, you know, that ufology is about the science of tomorrow, and maybe ufology is also about the science of the past. It's it's a dimension unto itself, and I think, and we think, that it affects every aspect of, of human uh, intercourse and development and, and uh, every aspect of our spiritual, uh, societal, political element elements. Um, I, I think it's just too weighty a subject, too important a subject to be denigrated by the petty political squabbling that takes place among ufologists today. Yeah. I, I think in desperation, people who passionately want their point of view to be the one that is accepted. I think whenever you take, someone told me long, long, long ago when I began work in this field, believe everything and believe nothing. And I think once you believe in any aspect of the UFO mystery, you've lost it. Once you champion any single theory, you've lost it. It is something that is so profound and so broad and covers so many areas and is so complex. And that's why I call it the reality game. I mean, we've been challenged to play this reality game yeah. by some undeclared cosmic opponents. And even though it's difficult and it's deceiving and we think we have the answers, then we don't. We have to play because it's the only game in the universe. You know, people like you and me who are playing the game and, and, and like uh, to reference back to that Joe Sixpack who isn't, you know, I, I feel like we're, you know, we're the ones who are kind of doing what we're supposed to do here on Earth. We're trying to evolve. I definitely see, yeah. see where you're going with yeah. that. Let me just uh, sort of harp a little bit back on the disclosure aspect of ufology. Do you think that they, you know, they tried that in the 60s and it didn't work? Um, do you think that that still is an unfeasible way of, uh, you know, trying to tackle the UFO phenomenon as far as, you know, trying to get a breakthrough with the government? Oh, I don't think the government knows anything about it. I don't think... Uh, I've had so many uh, people, whether they're in the Pentagon or whatever, who were secret UFO buffs, I mean, exploring every aspect of it. I know, I know, we just were talking about conspiracies. And it's like, I used to be asked when I was talking about UFOs back in the 60s, and said, well, what does the Air Force think about it? Like that would intimidate me, and I'd say, you're talking about the Air Force like it's one big bird kernel. You know, the Air Force is made up of many individuals, because some of the best leads I've ever had came from Air Force members when I was doing research actively, going out in the field, traveling every state in the Union and Canadian province. It came from Air Force and different military people who were friends of mine who, who probably risked uh, certain reprisals reprisals in their career by even talking to me. But but again I think 
If there is a shadow government, yes, they could know certain aspects. But in terms of the actual government, the elected government, they don't know anything about it. This idea of now Clinton's going to release it, now Carter's going to release it. That's like saying, you know, now Santa Claus is coming down in the Macy's parade. I mean, it's a big balloon filled with hot air. And it's just something to divert us from what's really going on. Now, again, some of the great sightings that I championed back in the 60s, the more I've done research into Operation Paperclip and some of the things that were going on at the end of World War II, uh, I've come to believe that, that they were experimental craft of our own by the German scientists that we smuggled over here with their family. Operation Paperclip put to work to accelerate our space program. There are many instances like that. Uh, but again, we find the occult, we find the mystical behind. I mean, the, the, the fact that the Nazis actually had mediums and felt they were contacting people from outer space directing some of their war programs, you're, gonna, you're not going to find that in William Elshire's fall, Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. You're not going to find that in your junior high textbooks. You really have to dig for this information to try to get some picture of what's really going on. So going after some government officials trying to open up, the average government official, I mean, knows nothing about this and thinks it's all kookery. And if if anyone ever did know, they're long dead. And the elderly people who are coming up with incredible stories now, we don't we don't know if that's dementia or whether it really happened. The field gets more and more complex. Now, my good friend Kevin Randall, I salute him completely. You know, he's... He is qualified in, in so many ways, being a former intelligence officer, going into all this material. He stays with it. I don't agree with with every aspect, but, you know, he's got my energy and he's got my support because it will be someone like that if there is anything to a government cover. It would be people like Kevin Randall that will. I, I've... Um, I'm sorry, Tim, but I, I've, I've given up on that approach. Hey, that's you know that's why we have you on the show for your for your uh, for your thoughts on these uh, big picture questions. Now, I have two questions here uh, that were sent in by I have writers at my website. They write uh, columns for my website. Here's the first one. This one comes from Tina Senna. She writes the column Esotericana on uh, every other Monday at the website. And here's her question. After so many years documenting the strange and the bizarre, have you ever had that moment when you thought, this isn't stimulating to me anymore? And if so, what did you do about it? And how do you continue to cultivate interest in the esoteric? Yeah, never, never had I had that moment. Just like I've never had writer's block as <laughs> to be a parent. <laughs> and how do I cultivate it? By, you know, going on wonderful programs such as yours and by writing more books that hopefully people are interested in. I I feel privileged that um, I have a fan base that justifies publishers awarding new contracts, and uh, that's uh, heaven on earth for me. Communicating, reaching people, talking to people, sharing ideas, but, uh, you know, just sharing ideas, sharing concepts. I've said so often, you know, when I find someone, and I do from time to time, who says they have all the answers, then I know one thing for certain. I'm not taking a long bus trip with that guy. <laughs> I don't want to hear it. <laughs> he will bore me to tears with the answer. 
Here's the second question. This is from Regan Lee. She writes actually for uh, UFO Magazine as well as uh, Banal of America, the website. And she also uh, she writes Trickster's Realm every other Monday uh, at, at BOA at our site. And here's her question. Uh, what are your thoughts on paranormal Bigfoot? All those Bigfoot encounters of the high strangeness kind that involve telepathy between humans and Bigfoot and or UFOs seen at the same time or orbs of light or Bigfoot dematerializing, etc. So the paranormal Bigfoot, what do you think of that aspect? Well, um, again, I, I have to remind that way back in the 1960s, that was, I wrote an article for Svaga magazine making a connection between Bigfoot UFOs and the paranormal. Marty Singer, who was the editor, said, you'll never make this work. John Keel said, you'll never make this work. And then my article came out, and both of them said, you made it work. I reworked the article in Mysteries of Time and Space, so I have been promoting the paranormal connection with Bigfoot since the mid-1960s, and I've written uh, quite a bit about it. Orbs and so forth, uh, again, I've, I've covered that so extensively. But a good friends of mine, decades long, like Lauren Coleman, uh, you know, I, again, totally support his research and the research of those, because I think the Bigfoot... Indian legends, all the tribes, I don't know of a single tribe that doesn't know of Bigfoot or Wok Wok or Oma, whatever they want to call it, whatever they do call them in their language. I think there is the real, and then I think there's the reflection. Um, Jerry Clark and Lauren Coleman wrote years ago that we have a planetary poltergeist that kind of reflects the physical, and then reflects it in terms of the non-physical. I think we have a lot of that going on. I think we have, again, whatever this intelligence is, with these cosmic tinker toys, having a lot of fun with this. I have written a lot about the trickster, the trickster element that is integral to so much of metaphysics. I think we have a lot of the trickster going on with Bigfoot, with UFOs, with, with the entire gamut. That's why we have to have a solid background. That's why we really have to learn to discriminate and discern what we're up against. Is this the true phenomena? Is this a reflective phenomena? Is this a mirror phenomena? I mean, it. this is serious business, folks. This is not fun and game and having your own television series crawling around dark houses. This is serious business. Exactly. What do you see in the next few years, decade or so, uh, just going on here on Earth uh, based on what you've seen in the last 50 years? Do you have any idea where this is all heading? Uh, a lot of people seem to think we're heading towards some kind of... Uh, some kind of uh, crescendo, if you will. You know, a lot of this 2012 business. I mean, that kind of s smells of Y2K to me. But you never know what you never know what's going to happen. But uh, and I'm sure there have been times in the past 50 years when people have been like, uh, you know, 
the world's going to end in 1973 or, uh, you know, all kinds of crazy stuff. So uh, do you have any sort of feeling on where things seem to be heading? Do you feel that acceleration that a lot of people seem to feel, or do you think that's a manufactured uh, acceleration? Well, we have to recognize, Tim, that America was founded as an apocalyptic nation. Columbus was a great believer that he was finding the New Jerusalem for the survivors of the great apocalypse, which he thought was imminent. We have apocalyptic literature throughout the entire history of our frontier, with circuit riders going around preaching the end is near, the end is near. We've had people crawl up on their roofs. We've had people I got to know very, very closely, the Heaven's Gate group, and... uh, Unfortunately, when I heard the news, I mean, I knew exactly that it must be they who had taken their lives. And I know the members, some who survived, who contacted me and said, we're going to join them, and by golly, they did. They, uh, this belief in an apocalyptic uh, end of things is pre- prevalent in our society, among our organized and our disorganized religions and cults. I have no question in my mind that our world is ending. Not forever. A new world is being born. And we're seeing the seeds of it all around us. The book I wrote, Roadmap of Time, which incredibly, someone wrote a review of it. It's published in 1975. They just wrote a review of it in April saying that, you know, this puts global warming, this puts everything in a new perspective, you know, finally after all our fears. <laughs> when the book came out, the French accepted it. Their Academy of Science asked permission to reprint certain parts, but it just died here in America. So in there, the research that I tied together, these brilliant scientists, and I'm not including myself, I was the reporter, I was a journalist recording their research indicates that at the time of the Mayan calendar, but around that time, you know, the world as we know it now will end. And I think we see the seeds of that being sown. But a new that only means a new world is being born. A new world is being born. And so, uh, all right, we, will, we have your opinion on what's what's next for the world, but what's next for you? Uh, what's coming uh, down the pike for Brad Steiger? I'm sure you've got a book or two. Uh, <laughs> at least uh, in the pipeline. What's next for you? Uh, what's coming down the pike for Brad Steiger that uh, people can look forward to and uh, and get? Well, this fall, Real Angels, Guiding Spirits, and Benevolent Beings. This is, will be a book in the manner and style of real ghosts, restless spirits, and haunted places. And it will be an angel book like... Nobody ever read before. It's going to stretch the definition of who these entities are to the limits of the universe. And as Shirley McLean said, I sound like Gore Vidal when I say that, but it's going to be a big, big, big book. And uh, it'll have, it'll have marvelous illustrations, artwork, and that should be out in um, probably early November, and then Anomalous, those wonderful guys, are bringing out Shadow World, which will be out in time for Halloween. So we'll be talking about Shadow World. 
And uh, that's that's for the rest of this year. And then, of course, as you know, Worlds Before Our Own, Anomalous has just reprinted that, which I'm delighted. Strange Guest. Oh, and my revelation, The Divine Fire, Reality uh, Press has reprinted that. But this is, I, I can't even put into words, Tim, how wonderful it feels. You know, in my 70s, and seeing all of these books being reborn for a new generation. I mean, I can't even put into words how wonderful that makes me feel. Yeah, it sounds it sounds uh, it sounds great. And I have actually right here sitting on my desk, uh, Patrick Weege, the the great man behind Anomalous Books, sent along to me when I was planning on the interview here. Strange guests and worlds before our own. So I have them here, and I've been reading them over the last couple of weeks. They're just fantastic books. Pat Patrick is another one. He reminded me that we first appeared in the pages of some newsletter when he was, I think he said, 14. <laughs> so it's it's marvelous, all these young people who, you know, think enough of, of the old horse to, to keep his works coming out. I, I couldn't be happier or more indebted to them. And to people like you, young people who are, have an interest, a keen interest, and obviously an intellect, and you've studied this, you know, none of your questions were superficial, blah, blah, that I'm, I'm so used to getting. So uh, I, I greatly enjoyed having our discussion tonight. I had a lot of fun. I had a lot of fun. And, uh, and, and like I said, I, I feel like having you on the show was a culmination of a lot of things on this season because, you know, we've been preaching for the past two seasons of the show is, you know, you got to know the history of this stuff. That, that it's a it's a it's a disappearing history. People aren't learning the history of of, right. of the paranormal and the That's esoteric. Right. And and then and when I had the opportunity to get you on the show, I knew you know this is the season finale guest. This is you know you don't get any better than Brad Stogger because he's he's seen it all. Well, and thank it, you. And he knows uh, you know he knows the field better than he knows this esoteric world that he's not pigeonholed into one or another, and he's not you know he's not afraid to jump from one subject to another. And so I just. uh I just have a just enormous amount of respect for you, and someday I hope to last as long as you in the in the world of the paranormal. <laughs> well, that's one of the secrets too—is kind of outlast your enemies. <laughs> Not that I've had any enemies, but excuse me, let me rephrase that: outlive your detractors. There you go. There you I don't go. like to think I don't like to think of enemies anybody as an enemy, but I have had my detractors in my time. And, of course, uh, you can always find more information on Brad Steiger and his lovely wife, Sherry Steiger, at bradandsherry.com. That's the website. Lots of great information on there. Honestly, Brad, I could probably go on here for, like, another 10 minutes uh, just heaping platitudes onto you. Um, I just am just amazed by just the sheer volume of work, the, the longevity, the open-mindedness, all the different genres that you've researched and studied. Um, I'm just in just in awe, and and I'm just thrilled that you you came on with all of America Audio, and we could wrap up the season with a legitimate icon in the world of esoterica. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, and thank you, and many blessings to you. There you have it, folks. That does it for the season finale of BOA Audio season two. Big, big, super huge thanks to Brad Steiger for coming on the show and helping us to close out the season. You can find out more information on Brad Steiger at the following website, www.bradandsherry.com, B-R-A-D-A-N-D-S-H-E-R-R-Y.com, bradandsherry.com. Check it out. 
Additionally, I want to give big thanks to all the great guests we've featured on BOA Audio throughout Season 2. Let's run down the list. Jim Mars, Paul Kimball, Dennis Spaulding, Scott Corrales, Paula Harris, Peter Davenport, Bart Sabrell, Ryan Wood, Richard Dolan, Nick Redfern, Matthew Tooney, Bill Ryan, Kerry Cassidy, Stanton Friedman, James Carrion, John Greenwald, Jerry E. Smith, Farry Yurdezu, Paul Shatskin, Mac Tonys, Marie Jones, Adam Gorightly, Greg Bishop, Tony Healy, Dr. Michael Sala, Kent Daniel Benkowski, Gary A. David, Chris Stiles, Robert Hastings, Lisa Scheel, and, of course, Brad Steiger. There was a lot of pressure at the close of Season 1 to live up to the standards we set when it came to rolling out Season 2, and I can say beyond a shadow of a doubt that we definitely lived up to those expectations for Season 2. We've covered a wide variety of esoteric topics, a myriad of genres in the esoteric field, and that would not be possible without the great guests we've had featured throughout the season. So huge, huge thanks to all of the great guests who appeared on BOA Audio Season 2 throughout the last year. Moving right along, it's time for BOA Audio listener feedback, and it's time again for me to give a little feedback to you. I want to say thank you so much for sticking with this program, for discovering the program, for spreading the word about the program. This is a show that was created by an esoteric radio enthusiast for fellow esoteric radio enthusiasts, and I'm humbled to have so many people listening to and enjoying the program. This is as much my show as it is yours. Your questions, comments, critiques, guest suggestions all help to shape this program, and it would not be possible without your help and support. So thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. This is not my program, it's our program, and it would not be possible without your help and support and feedback. So thank you so much again to the great BOA Audio listening audience. Additionally, I want to give thanks and kudos to the fantastic staff of BenallofAmerica.com. Leslie, Chiron, R. Lee, Joe V., Ralph Molesworth, and Tina Senna. Your help and support throughout Season 2 has been nothing short of tremendous. The feedback, input, and advice has been instrumental in developing BOA Audio into what it is today. Yes, my name is on the program. Yes, I host the show. Yes, I do the interviews. But the people behind the scenes, Leslie, Chiron, R. Lee, Joe V., Ralph Molesworth, and Tina Senna, they deserve kudos and thanks. So thank you so much to the great staff of BOA. What's next for BOA Audio? I can tell you right now. It's called Season 3, and it's going to be coming around the bend, the end of September, early October of 2007. We're already putting together the big list of potential guests. We're planning on bringing back some of your favorites from Seasons 1 and 2, we're going to be bringing in some new guests, of course, that you haven't heard from yet on the program, and we're going to be delving into the big picture topics in Esoterica, as only BOA Audio can. I expect some kind of announcements towards the middle of August with regards to season premiere date, season premiere guest, which we expect will be Jim Mars, and some of the rundown and some teasers for season three. So expect that kind of stuff towards the end of the summer. Just because we're not putting out audio programs does not mean that BenAllOfAmerica.com goes dark for the rest of the summer. We're going to have fantastic columns still from the great BOA staff. I'll be writing more feature articles and columns at BOA. We may put together some audio specials. I'm not sure yet, but we may do something like that. So stick around to BenAllOfAmerica.com. Yes, Season 2 is finished. Yes, we've wrapped up the program for the year. But BOA will continue to be a daily source of news, opinion, and satire. So, as we've said at the close of the program, week after week, BenAllOfAmerica.com, 
make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. If you are a long-time BOA Audio listener or an appreciative newcomer, maybe you've stuck with us throughout the whole of Season 2 and you want to help support the audio series, you want to say thank you for 31 episodes of BOA Audio Season 2, there's a way to do it. You go to benallofamerica.com, you click the PayPal button, and you make a donation. No donation is too small. All donations help, and they go towards paying for bandwidth, phone bills, and all of the assorted expenses that come along with a program like this. Now, I presume that the people who are still listening are the hardcore BOA audio listeners, the people who listen all the way through the program. I'm going to share a little bit of insight with you folks, because you're the ones who really have helped make the program so strong. Yes, we've been giving away these free MP3s now for the last two years. I'm going to be honest with you folks, we need to get this program into the black. For the past couple of years we've been in the red, we need to get it into the black and we're going to keep going with the show. So, there's a very, very, very good chance that by the time Season 3 starts, those free MP3s from Season 1 and 2 are not going to be free anymore. If you're a hardcore listener and you want to grab those MP3s, you better grab them now because there's a very good chance they will not be available for free at the end of the summer. You've stuck with us. You've been our greatest supporters, and that's why I'm telling you this now. Other radio shows may have gone this kind of route before and sprung it on their audience as a surprise. I don't want to do that to you folks. So, hey, grab the MP3s. It might save you some money if you want to hear those MP3s sometime in the fall because they may not be free when the fall rolls around. Next week, there is no next week. I'm not even sure what we're going to have on BenallOfAmerica.com next Saturday, but we'll have something for you. No more audio, of course, until late September, early October when Season 3 kicks off. I don't have much more to say, folks. I want to say thank you, though, to everyone who has supported the program, everyone who's been listening to the program for so long, everyone who has spread the word about the program. I'm repeating myself, but I'm saying it because it means so much to me. The BOA Audio listeners are the fuel that makes this machine go. Without your help, support, input, and all that great stuff, we would not be where we are today. So thank you so much. Until you hear from me at the end of September slash early October, this is Tim Benall thanking you for listening, wishing you a fantastic summer, and signing off.